Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. We're live. Hi, everyone. Mm. Welcome to... <laughs> Welcome. Do you know how much editing has gone into uh, not eliminating, but amplifying Matt's woohoos and yes and kabooms? <laughs> we had a whole show, a whole episode that was titled after one of these little outbursts from Matt. It was awesome. People loved it. Well, um, I'm never sure because, uh, you know, you always launch into your really nice introductions and you're quite, you know, eloquent. So they're they're a thing, but I always feel like I have to say something. It's probably really annoying for you. No, it's Sorry. not annoying at all. It's lovely to hear your voice. <laughs> Any, anything else before I do the intro? <laughs> As you were. No, that's it. Okay, okay. Hi again, everyone. Welcome to episode 34 of Undersampled Radio. Uh, we have yet another new hardware setup for you. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll notice that my camera angle has changed. And this is due to me dropping out of the show last week in the middle of the introduction to the new segment, which is our Riddle Me This thingamajig, where we give you a riddle. So totally have that figured out. No, there were absolutely no problems today, I am sure. <laughs> Matt, is it snowy up there? It's really snowy, yeah. We had like um, 60 or 70 centimeters yesterday. And um, more, I don't know, more coming tomorrow, I think. But yeah, and it was fairly like substantial snow as well. So it was one of those things where you have to like take about five shovels full just to get down one, down to the ground. It's pretty bad. Yikes. You guys have had a lot um, out. Uh, Jeremy's in um, BC, right? Yeah, so we're just, we're, we've just about melted out of the last, the last big one. Um, I, but we've never had more than uh maybe five or six centimeters on the ground at a time okay it's a lot for it's a lot for here it's shut down the city twice <laughs> right right okay it's exciting snowball fight oh wait wait did i just see a youtube video of a ubc snowball fight was that ubc yes that they were they uh university public relations was very excited about that footage <laughs> oh i bet that's awesome there was one last week uh, i think it was at mit where they built some sort of giant Snowball catapult. <laughs> Similarly uh, amusing. By the way, audience, that was our guest this week. His name is Dr. Jeremy Yoder. He's a, he is a postdoc at UBC. How are you doing, Jeremy? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Welcome to the show. Wait, where, um, where are you right now? Because I'm pretty sure there's a, some kind of awesome looking gas tank right behind your shoulder. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, so I'm um, I'm in the Forest Sciences Building at, at UBC, which is this lovely. Uh, I was here. I'll just do the pan around again. Uh, yeah, this lovely. Ooh. Okay, that's yeah, pretty nice. nice. Wood framed complex, um, and it's separated into a block of offices on the far side that you you would have just seen there, and a lab block, which is what's right behind me. Um, and I don't know whose lab this is, but it looks like they do some um, fair bit of organic chemistry work. I'm seeing things that look like they're involved in separation and 
a lot of Florence flasks. Okay. They put the labs on the one side of the building so they can contain fires. Yeah, so I think it's it's actually there. The lab block is all on a separate uh, HVAC system, and I assume the redundant power is there, but probably not in the offices. It's, very, Man, it's all very tiny. Okay, I'm gonna spend. I'm gonna, I'm gonna every every time you I can see you, I'm gonna be uh, looking for signs of smoke and various colored fumes in the background. <laughs> Possibility hey, of breaking breaking news right over my shoulder. Um, what you? Hey, Matt. Yep. Can you hear me? Yeah, I oh, can. Uh, what, uh, so, so last week you gave us your favorite riddle of all time, I believe. Yeah, and, well. And uh, yeah. why don't you repeat that riddle to us and tell us the answer, since oh, we've goodness. had a couple of correct and incorrect answers submitted. I'm so not ready for this. So, <laughs> from, from memory, <laughs> the riddle was uh, this, this fam famous riddle originally uh, posed by Lord Kelvin. Uh, apparently, and reported by Owen Schrodinger. And I first read it in um, a really cool book by Isaac Asimov that was not a fiction, fictional, but a non-fiction book called, if I remember rightly, Building Blocks of the Universe that I read when I was about 11. And I think I might have, well, d deliberately or, or, or by accident, pinched it from the school library. I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, I love this book, and it had it had lots it has lots of really good stories in it, and this is one of them. So the idea originally uh, in the story was that you took a cup of water out of the ocean and somehow marked it forever, so that you could recognise the molecules in the glass again, and then you pour it back in, and then you wait X thousand years for the ocean to circulate, and then you go anywhere in the ocean, take a glass out. And the question was like, how many molecules from your original glass would you expect to get back? And, um, and sometimes I sort of phrase it like, well, what are the chances of getting a molecule back? Because in general, people think the chances are pretty low. Um, mm -hmm. It turns out that you get hundreds of these molecules back. Uh, it's pretty amazing. I, if you do it with, if I remember rightly, half a litre, you get 1,600 molecules back which is loads and kind of awesome if you think about dinosaur pee. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so all that stuff that you hear people saying about, you know, oh, you, you're drinking a water that Einstein drank or, or whatever, they're all actually probably true. Um, anyway, sorry, Graham, I know you didn't mean me to go on this ridiculous tangent. <laughs> I've done it now. Um, so we adapted the, the question to ask about, instead of a glass of water in the ocean, a liter of magma from the mantle. Yes. So you take a liter of magma, you, uh, you, you <laughs> what, what did we say? You substitute some highly stable new isotope of magnesium into the olivine molecules. Yeah. And, and what did you call it? What, you, what was your logo? What was your slogan? So instead of olivine, this new hard. mineral is called caperine. No, Salad, what was it? Pepperonine? It was, something else to do with, it was something else to do with pizzas. It was anchovine. <laughs> anchovine. So uh, we take a litre of anchovine, put it in the mantle via subduction zone, and then go to 
whatever the equivalent of Hawaii is, some hotspot volcano in a billion years, after it's recirculated, take another litre of basalt and how much anchovine do we expect? God. Uh, it's not, not, uh, okay, so I worked it out on a piece of metal. Here's my piece of He's literally metal. doing this right now. All, <laughs> the really snow mad. is thick up there. All I can uh, say is I'm sorry. I it's, been, it's actually been seven, seven days uh, that uh, we've had <laughs> since we posed the question. Seven days prior to that, that we actually wrote the question down. This is and, a tragedy. And now we are here we are live, live, and Matt is writing the answer on a piece of paper. <laughs> so, so look, okay, so what the, the question basically boils down to, if you think about it, it's like the ocean, uh, let's put it the other way around. There are 1,500 times more molecules in a glass of water than there are glasses of water in the ocean, right? That's, that's the ratio that it boils down to. Molecules right. are really, really small, <laughs> basically. Um, that, so newsflash, <laughs> you know, for anyone who didn't realize. <laughs> so I looked up the volume of the Earth is a trillion cubic kilometers, which is a pretty convenient number. Like, there's no way that's a coincidence. Um, <laughs> and I read again on Wikipedia that the, that the mantle is 85% of the volume of the Earth. So yep. that's so I'm using 850 billion cubic kilometers, and I'm using a density of uh, 4,200 kilograms per meter cubed, which is a a, a mishmash. It's a completely done in my head average um, of the density of the lower mantle and the upper mantle because they're quite different. And then, oh my God, this, this is awful. And then, <laughs> so you've got 8.5 times 10 to the 23, one liter bottles of magma. The, um, uh, a mole of olivine weighs 200 grams. So it's because it's magnesium iron silicate. And I, I can't read my own workings out, but I get that there are, so you end up with uh, 129 times 10 to the 23 molecules in our liter bottle, which was, weighs 4.3 kilograms, right? So a liter bottle, 200 uh, grams per mole. So that's 4.3 divided by 0.2, that's uh, um, 21 moles in the liter. Hey, there you go, so. And uh, 8.5 times 10 to the 23 bottles of magma in the mantle. So what you end up with is 129 divided by 8.5, which is 15 molecules back. So the answer, wait, so According let's go me. back and, and let me see what the question was. Okay. I think if it's one of the chances, I would have to go look at like this as a distribution. The question we actually asked was, do we expect to find any molecules of anchovine in our sample? Okay, so the yes. answer <laughs> is yes, probably. Um, so I've randomly number generated a, num a name out of a hat of all the correct answers we got. How many were and A bunch. And we've, I'm gonna butcher That's the name. Uh, it's an alternative fact. I'm gonna butcher the name here. It's uh, Ari Hardikainen. Is that right? Matt, do you know? 
Yep. Uh, anyway. on, on Software Underground. Yes. Congratulations. Sorry. I think he said 53 or something. He's, um, his yeah, answer, if 56. I had his answer in front of me, I could tell you exactly what he said. Um, which is, uh, but I don't, and I'm not going to work it out on a piece of paper. So let's move on to something. That's like... the right order of magnitude. <laughs> hey, Jeremy, um, mm -hmm. what do you do at UBC? What do I do at UBC? Well, I am, uh, I'm working with the Adaptree project, which has actually just been reborn as the Co-Adaptree project. Um, but the basic, the, uh, the basic idea of the project is to identify genes that are important for coping with uh, climate in forest trees. Um, so the, the original adapt tree project did this with lodgepole pine and interior spruce, which are two uh, important timber species in BC and Alberta. Um, and they occupy wide uh, latitudinal ranges and wide climactic gradients. Um, and they're an, interesting, they're an interesting choice for sort of a pure evolutionary reason because they, they last shared a common ancestor about 120 to 140 million years ago. So um, if the same genes are involved in coping with, different, with, hot, with uh, different temperature and rainfall regimes in both species, that's really interesting. Um, They've seen it they're, all. They're using, they're using molecular tools that have been around since uh, uh, all the way back then. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and that's actually what the first stage of Adaptree found. So this was, this was work that was underway before I joined the project. Um, I, they identified, uh, 47 genes that are, that show signs of association with different climates in, uh, and climate adapted, uh, traits in both pine and spruce. Um, and so that's, that's sort of the, that's one of the kinds of, uh, pure evolutionary biology questions we're interested in. Um, the, the other, the, the applied side of this is that, um, the, the factors that we're testing for are changing and the genetic tools that we're, that we're building can, uh, be applied to help understand how, um, spruce and pine populations will cope with climate, not just, um, in other geographic locations where the plants grow, but, uh, the climates that they're going to experience 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now. Um, and that comes back to this, the role of both species as, um, as timber species. There's lots of, there's lots of um, existing planting infrastructure in both BC and Alberta around determining where you source your seed to replant forests after you've cut it all down and, and made it into um, beautiful buildings on the UBC campus, for example. Um, <laughs> And, um, and all of that is predicated on the idea that, that you want to move seed from, from conditions that are similar to the conditions that you're moving, them, moving it to. Um, but what we know is that, is that conditions, current conditions at any given planting site are not going to reflect what the conditions at the planting site are 30 years from now when the trees are actually starting to mature. Um, mm -hmm. What's and, the life cycle on one of these trees? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think harvest harvest size starts to. We're starting to talk about thirty or forty years from from planting for for both species. Um, 
I actually don't know exactly how long how long they take before they start producing cones, which is what I think of as as sort of maturity as a, from an evolutionary standpoint. Mm -hmm. But um, on the order of decades. Okay. And is it the is it that economic sort of aspect that led you to to choose or use those two species, or are there other reasons why they're particularly good for this study? Well, there's a lot. There's a lot of good reason. There's a lot of good reason. Um, Apart, well, that's closely connected to the economics, actually. So, <laughs> um, there have been there have been long-term uh, what we call provenance trials, um, testing. So, it I should back up and say one of the one of the things that if you're if you have a species that you want to uh, improve for for uh, uh, agricultural production, say. The traditional thing to do is to get a lot of a lot of different genotypes of the species and grow them all together and select the ones that do the best and use and use their seeds and then keep doing that over and over again. Um, with a multi multi decade generation time, that's tricky with trees, but uh, we actually have have uh, very long term experiments for uh, for lodgepole pine and some slightly less long term experiments for the interior spruce. Huh. Uh, that have that provide that kind of data. So these are species that have been a focus of this, the kind of committed work that um, that that you need to do to get that kind of data. Um, how, do you, how do you oh, conduct short-term experiments on a on a species with such a long life cycle? You don't, for the most part. Um, what we what what Adaptree is able to do is we do we do experiments, um, but we do experiments on seedlings. Um, oh. And that's that can actually get that can actually be important data because uh, seedling survival is a critical is a critical factor um, for concerns about replanting um, and uh, pine and spruce like lots and lots of plant species make many many more babies than they ever sort of expect to make it all the way to reproductive age mm -hmm. and so the the factors that determine which seedlings survive past that stage are actually really, really critical. Hmm. Um, so in a sense, so that we can't get, we can't easily get information about the ultimate cone crop that a, that a given seedling will produce without sticking around for, for 30 or 40 or 50 years. But um, we, we can find out whether it will survive a, a sudden frost or cope with hotter, hotter uh, summers than it's expecting. Hmm. Hmm. And what, like, this this might be a really stupid question, so apologies in advance. Um, to what extent are individuals capable of sort of uh, uh, like in life adaptation? I mean, not genetic adaptation, but sort of mm -hmm. what, what, how do they respond to the long cycle uh, climate variants that they get to see, or do, or do they? They they do. Um, so most. Most flowering plants have responses to uh, changes in the daylight length that are that are closely coordinated to the time. So in it, so um, in trees, one of the critical one of the critical factors for adaptation to climate is um, winter dormancy. When you when you so a um, a tree's typical cycle is they grow during the summer and they sense the days are getting shorter. Um, so they they harden up. They um, they go the the growing tissue at the tips of the tips of buds goes dormant, 
and mm -hmm. it sort of hunkers down for the winter and it doesn't try to grow because it, it, if it were more active, it would be more vulnerable to frost. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the spring, it, uh, it undergoes uh, what we call bud break and it begins growing again. Um, and those, the timing of those events turns out to be very important in pine and spruce for, for uh, determining growth rate in different climates and risk of, risk of cold injury in different climates. Um, hmm. And to the extent that that's, that's responding to something that will not change with climate, which is uh, daylight or day length, um, potentially trees are following cues that do not, will not no longer reliably predict what they're going to face in terms of risk of frost or risk of summer drought. Um, right, I see. But can they, uh, okay, this sounds really weird. I won't, I won't think too hard about how to phrase this, but do, I mean, can they sort of learn I mean, uh, uh, if they if they sort of uh, come out early and then it's a horrendous, they get shut down again, or they die, or a bunch of their population dies. Do they? Uh, that is that's an excellent question, and I don't know. I don't think I've seen data that that shows that. Um, that would be kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, like, I'll have to. I would. I would have to. I would have to go digging in the literature. Actually, I, I mean, it would almost um, I, mean yeah. having some kind of memory. But then, when you sort of said, you know, that they, they sense when the winter's coming, like it mm -hmm. just makes it makes a layperson like me wonder. Well, what does like sensing involve? And um, you know, I, I guess you could maybe try and figure because presumably it's that cycle you described is what gives rise to tree rings. Uh, yes, right. yes, uh, it's related to that. Um, in, a, uh, in all temperate tree species, there's this annual cycle where they're doing a lot of growing in the summer and they're not in winter. And, um, right. and that, that get, so you have, I think it is less well-defined rings in tropical trees, for example, which can keep growing most of the year. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so how many uh, generations does it require to, um, in, in your project uh, express enough genomic change to quantify adapt adaptation? <laughs> um, so that's a, so that's a, that depends on what, how we quantify adaptation. And I, I, um, so I saw this question in the show notes and I had to do some math. <laughs> um, the traditional way of, of, quantifying adaptation is in terms of uh, what we call a response to selection. So it's change in the, the mean of a population's trait value per generation. Um, uh, often expressed in like units of the standard deviation of the trait value per generation. Um, that, is, that is data that, as I've said, is hard to get in, a, in an expedient fashion for uh, long-lived species. <laughs> um, so one of the one of the things we can do instead is is look at variation among populations and ask whether there is um, whether uh, whether we see um, pines anywhere coping with the conditions that we expect to see later, um, and we do for the for a lot of the range. Um, so what were the numbers I came up with? Uh, the, the pine populations we have sampled have, uh, are 
locations with mean annual temperatures ranging from negative uh, 2.8 centigrade to 5.3 centigrade, um, which is a range that is approaching sort of the worst case scenario for global average temperature change. Um, individual sites are going to experience a lot more, a lot less than that. Um, and that's that's actually a, like predicting the change at a particular location. At a particular location is an entirely separate project. Um, uh, so that tells us that some, that somewhere in the in the places we've sampled, there's some there are trees that are coping with any given condition. Um, and we can we can uh, by when we when we have a list of genes that that we know differ between those two those extreme temperature regimes, we can ask whether populations that are likely to get to, from, say, negative 2.8 centigrade to zero centigrade average temperature, um, whether they have variation at those genes that would support the change. Hmm. Um, but there's still the problem of, of these long generation times. So even if, they're, even if trees are producing seeds that will be adapted to what they're going to face, it's going to take 30 years before those trees are, are the population, right? Hmm. Um, and, and so the, the, the generation time is really the, is really the, um, the catch in, in this case. Um, and this is, so this is uh, one of the motivations of the adapt free project is, is something called uh, assisted gene flow, which is, um, basically taking this this management and replanting infrastructure and saying okay we know we're going to deliberately move trees that are that are better suited to the future climates to to the places we're replanting hmm. um and this has been this has been talked about a lot as we've started to begin to imagine how we might use genomic data in in conservation and um resource wildlife resource management cases um, but Adaptree and, and uh, BC Forestry are really, I think, one of the only cases I'm aware of where people are actually just about ready to start doing it. Interesting. Um, yeah. What is, okay, so we, um, I forgot to mention at the beginning of this episode <laughs> that you have an awesome blog and you have all your publications <laughs> listed up there. Many of which are open source. You can, you can read them without a subscription to one of these fancy journals. And one of the things that I, I see as a theme, common kind of theme in your publications, is the mention of co-adaptation mm -hmm. and co-evolutionary traits and, and measuring those things. So um, for, first of all, give, because I don't know anything about biology, give us uh, sort of the classic example of this um, mutualistic symbiosis and how co-evolution is, is related. Uh, yeah, so coevolution coevolution is really my first um, evolutionary biology love. Um, it is uh, it's it's really what you get when when two species interact in nature and they they each have an impact on each other's fitness, um, and that can be in you know in a positive way or in a negative way. Um, the system that the system that I that I did my PhD on is is actually something that I will, without it being too much of a humble brag, uh, call one of the classic systems. <laughs> um, so, and this is this is uh, the yucca yucca moth pollination mutualism. Um, so I I 
I know this because I, I looked it up to tweet it uh, over the weekend. Charles Darwin called this uh, the most wonderful case of fertilization ever published. Uh, so if you're familiar, if you're familiar at all with how pollination usually works, um, plants offer some sort of reward, uh, usually nectar in flowers and insects or uh, bats or birds or other things come and come and try to drink the nectar. And in, do, in doing that, they get pollen on them. Um, and then they go to another flower to drink more nectar and they deposit pollen uh, and fertilize the flower. Um, typically, that's pretty haphazard. Uh, the, the vast majority of, of pollination interactions, so honeybees, for example, pollinate lots of different, um, lots of different flowers and they, they pick up pollen from all of them. They tend to go from, they tend to stick to one species of flower at a batch, but um, they don't, uh, they, go where the, they go where the nectar is and they don't need any special, special adaptations on the flowers part aside from producing nectar that they want. Um, mm -hmm in order for everything to, to, to work. Um, yuccas and yucca moths are, are very different from this. Um, so yucca moths are these uh, small kind of drab looking moths that would not even, you would not even notice them if you, if you didn't look up close. But um, all of the females of this species have mouth parts that no other insects have, which they use for carrying pollen. Um, and the reason for this is that uh, when a female yucca moth has mated, she collects pollen in a, in a yucca flower, and then she goes to another yucca flower and lays her eggs in the flower. Um, and this is, so yucca moths are descended from moths that, that were seed parasites, um, and they still are in a sense. Um, the, 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 the food for yucca moth larvae is developing yucca seeds. Um, and to ensure that those seeds are going to be there, when she's laid her eggs in the flower, uh, the female moth uh, goes to the, the tip of the pistil and um, usually, it, depends, it varies from species to species, but usually sort of ducks her head against the uh, stigmatic surface to pack pollen into the, the receptive part of the flower and fertilize it. <laughs> so it's very direct delivery of pollen to the place it needs to go. Um, and so the flower is fertilized, it develops into a fruit. Uh, her larvae hatch inside that developing fruit and they eat some of the seeds. Um, and the moths, like lots of, lots, of, uh, lots of butterflies and moths have actually a very limited adult lifespan. Uh, so they, they don't feed as adults. Um, their only food source is stocking up on yucca seeds while they're, while they're larvae. Hmm. Um, wow. And at this point, there may have been other things that pollinated yuccas in the past. Currently, there is nothing that really effectively moves pollen. Um, and the plants don't seem to mind that. They've, they've uh, reduced their pollen output. They, there's something called the pollen to ovule ratio that, that varies across uh, plant species, which is just the ratio of the number of pollen grains that a, that a plant makes relative to the number of, of ovules of the tissue that will develop into individual seeds. Um, mm -hmm. And typically, that ratio is huge. Um, you make pollen is pollen is relatively cheap, and it's hard to direct because somebody else is carrying it, right? So you right. make lots of it. But yuccas make much much less pollen than other flowering plants hmm. because they know it's going to be basically hand hand delivered by these moths uh, and put exactly where it needs to go. And uh, as a consequence of that, yucca flowers are not very well 
will uh, um, I was about to say designed they're not <laughs> they're not they are not very well suited to the sort of accidental pollination that you see with like uh, bumblebees or generalized pollinators right. yeah, um, cool. yeah so that that uh, most of my PhD work was was on uh, uh, that relationships actually uh, and specifically uh, Joshua trees, which are a yucca species that grows in uh, Southern California and Nevada. Um, and and, and uh, is there evidence then that the, so that the yuccas sort of predate the moths and is there, there's evidence in the sort of fossil record or something that they used to have more uh, attractive flowers? For instance, uh, that's all. That's all indirect inference. Actually, we don't have. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think. I we don't have. I don't think we have anything. We don't have fossilized yucca moths. <laughs> um, we have uh, a fair bit of subfossil uh, data from for sort of the past distribution of things like Joshua tree that are in the desert and and get uh, incorporated into pack rat bittens a lot. Um, <laughs> but I don't, uh, the fossil calibrations on the, the phylogenies that we have are pretty, pretty far removed from the yuccas and the moths. Right. Hmm. So that, that seems like a natural, um, logical uh, evolution. Uh, so you start with this sort of symbiotic benefit for both species you that eventually uh, over the course of many many generations evolves into something uh, that you can find in the genomic record like the reduction of pollen in the case of the mm -hmm. yucca plant um, but it's my understanding that there are some uh, mutualistic symbiosis situations in which one of the species doesn't receive a benefit and in fact mm -hmm. may detriment from the relationship mm -hmm. is that true yeah so, okay, what, so this is um okay. Sort of the classic evolutionary puzzle of mutualism is why would you why would you why would you evolve to benefit another species? Um, right. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of uh, theoretical solutions to that problem, and we see examples that seem to fit different versions of those solutions. Um, a lot of them boil down to uh, cutting off the interaction if you don't get what you want. And so the example in, in yuccas and yucca moths is that yuccas that receive too much damage to their flowers uh, in the course of pollination, so the, the moths are um, jabbing a, a sort of needle-like opopositor into the flower to lay eggs. If you do that too many times, the flower just dies. Um, and so the, the larvae don't get any benefit. Um, uh, and the the plants are long-lived relative to the moths, so they can afford to ditch a whole lot of flowers um, and sort of maintain that uh, selection against against cheaters. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so how does the stability um, of evolutionary traits, how do we reach an evolutionary stability in the case of non-dual uh, beneficial mutualism. Uh, so that's a good question. So you mean cases where one species is getting something out of the interaction, but the other isn't necessarily? Right. If there is such a thing as that stability, maybe the 
I mean, I don't know what kind of evidence there is that things reach a equilibrium like that. Well, so one of the 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 most straightforward evidence is that we see mutualistic interactions everywhere. So they they stick around long enough that they are they are um, they stick around long enough for us to observe them. Um, or, or they're common enough that, that they're, they're always happening somewhere. That's right. Um, and we do we do see where people have taken the time to to look for these stabilizing mechanisms like the the um, uh, the floral death response. Um, we usually find something like that, in, particularly in very specialized two-way relationships like that. Um, one of the one of the interesting questions I think for for ongoing research is is how you get to that kind of specialized pairwise benefit. Um, there are lots of there's a lot of thought that um, that bacteria, for example, often transition from being uh, being pathogens causing disease to being uh, commensalists that sort of have no effect on their hosts but but get some benefit from hanging out in say the the uh, the human gut um, to actually providing a benefit to the host and one of the big factors that that seems to be important is how things are transmitted um, so if you are a bacterium that can transmit uh, via a sneeze you don't necessarily have a lot of investment in any one host individual, right? Um, you just need to get to you just need to get to the next the next person to infect. Um, but if you're a bacterium that it, that is mostly transmitted from uh, from parents to offspring, um, you're invested in getting that uh, getting that individual to the point of producing offspring. Um, hmm. And we see. Uh, we see cases where there are there are microorganisms that that have sort of different modes of transmission available to them and behave can behave differently depending on depending on the mode of transmission. Um, one of the one of the sort of textbook examples, this isn't getting all the way to mutualism, um, was uh, oh I'm going to flub this because I haven't read it recently. <laughs> um, the introduction of cholera into South America. Um, there was a uh, an introduction of a new strain of cholera in the I want to say the 70s or 80s that was that was quite virulent. Um, that was primarily spread by via um, uh, poorly treated sewage. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the thing about the thing about that mode of transmission is you don't need. You don't need uh, your host to be healthy and walking around to to produce um, uh, infectious waste. Um, and so one of the one of the things that was observed over the course of that that um, that outbreak, though, is that in countries that that uh, in places that were able to that either had good uh, good sanitation in place or were able to upgrade sanitation in, re in response to the outbreak, cholera evolved to be less, less deadly because then the, uh, the, the way to transmit had was person to person contact mm -hmm. and it was necessary. You, you have to be walking around in order to, in order to spread. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's sort of one step along this continuum from pathogen to, to something beneficial. 
Hmm. But you can you can kind of you can kind of tell tell the same just so story for like the yucca and the moth. Um, uh, yucca moths now, as we see them, basically spend their whole lives on and around yucca plants. Um, when the when the larvae are ready to are ready to pupate, they they tunnel out of the fruit and they um, climb down and burrow into the soil and they they pupate there and then they emerge about whenever um, whenever flowering season comes around again. Um, you can imagine that that yucca moths that were able to move pollen as well as as well as do their seed parasitism business uh, were better able to ensure that there would be a seed crop. Um, mm -hmm. And um, maybe also ensured the that the sort of health and and sustainability of host populations. That's getting a little a little uh, beyond individual level natural selection. But um, yeah, well, so the the one common theme that I see here related to um, our audience's interests is the 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 modeling aspect of of genetics, right? So you've got these, you've got yucca moths doing their thing in a short, relatively short time frame, but you still have, you still want to model these effects and you've got pine trees, which have long time spans and you long life spans and you want to be able to see changes over generations. It, it, sorry. Oh, sorry. Did you lose me? Yep. Yeah. Uh, so what kind of modeling do you do? Uh, genetic modeling? Uh, so a lot of, uh, a lot of the modeling in the sense that I think you folks use it is re uh, is really just pretty off-the-shelf model fitting. Um, uh, some of the simplest things that I do are uh, basically regression analyses of frequency of different genetic variants in different environments. Um, so I have genetic samples from, from many populations experiencing a, a range of different uh, temperature or rainfall regimes, and I can... I can ask for every for every uh, marker in my data set which ones show the biggest differences in allele frequency and variant frequency between high and low temperature, high and low rainfall. Um, the The actual model fitting there is is often very basic. Um, one of the more one of the more complex methods is something called uh, BNV, which actually uh, models the the variation, the covariation in allele frequencies among populations in space. Hmm. So one, uh, one of the, this is, this may get into the weeds a little bit. One of the sort of uh, very basic processes of population genetics is something called isolation by distance. Um, and this, uh, this is the principle that if you have, if you have populations scattered across the landscape so that um, even if there's no, environmental differences in what they're experiencing. Um, a population at one end of the species range probably doesn't exchange migrants directly with a population at the other end of the species range very often, right? Um, uh, there, there's just limits to how, how far things can move every generation. Um, that creates uh, patterns of, of genetic differentiation across the whole species range just as a consequence of that, of that dispersal limitation. Um, so BNV um, takes that as given and estimates a, sort of a, comes up with a background estimate of the covariance of, 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 of genetic similarity 
across all of the sites in your in your data set based on their their geographic distance and then it um, uses that information as a as a starting as a standard for comparison to identify individual markers that show given that relate that covariance relationship that show um, stronger than expected associations with with variables that also that vary across the landscape in addition to uh, geography if that makes sense <laughs> right yeah it's like a inverse distance waiting to sort of say these things should have more in common these things should have less in common that's right so these things these things are in very different climates but they're also very far apart are they are they more genetically dif different than we expect anyway basically right right yeah that makes sense so i want to pivot a bit here and uh talk about side projects uh matt and i have these silly little side projects where we're doing little computer programming things um, but Jeremy actually has a side project that has impact and meaning <laughs> to the world, um, which is the Queer in STEM uh, survey and uh, organization. So tell us a bit, a bit about Queer in STEM, how it's got started and, and what it's doing currently. Yeah, so um, we are, we're actually in a, in a really interesting time right now for, for studying, studying uh, the diversity of the scientific workforce in um, in the U.S. and in North America and uh, worldwide, really, um, there's been there's sort of an increasing awareness that that diversity has an impact on on uh, a potential impact on scientific productivity. We we know that our, there's some indirect evidence that more diverse collaborative teams uh, produce more papers, um, get more done. Um, there's a sort of a general idea that if you have people with with a broader range of perspectives and and um, backgrounds coming together to look at a question, you get you get more different possible answers to the question, right? Hmm. Um, and so uh, this has been this has been kind of developing since before I started graduate school, I think, but it's really coming together in the last few years. Um, and my my very personal angle on this is that is that um, I'm a gay man working in evolutionary biology. Uh, I actually came out of the closet in graduate school. I made some of my first out gay friends in grad school. I had a relatively conservative upbringing, um, and uh, so I've I've generally found science to be a pretty friendly place for uh, for that identity. Um, I knew I knew of. LGBTQ folks working in in the sciences uh, almost from my first year of graduate school, um, but you know I'm I'm aware that that's sort of one data point and one thing that one thing that would come up in conversations about about my experiences oh well you know are is this another is this another minority that is underrepresented in science um, and we don't we don't know. <laughs> Um, there aren't there aren't good numbers in part because the data just isn't collected. Um, yeah. So to 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 give you a really concrete example, um, I just finished a round of uh, of faculty job applications in the fall. Um, I submitted uh, I think it was 52 applications this year, um, and 52. you know, they, <laughs> um, I. Uh, I took every chance I could, um, and 
uh, and I should say it's paid off, but that's a, that's a different thing altogether. Um, and so in, in the US and Canada, you almost, you almost always get some sort of uh, human resources standardized questionnaire about, about diversity, or, uh, some sort of uh, uh, questions about your race and ethnicity, whether you're, uh, you identify as male or female. Um, uh, uh, often in the US now, they're asking about veteran status and about uh, disability status. Um, in all of those, in all of those surveys that I took, I think I was asked about my my uh, sexual orientation and gender identity maybe twice. Mm -hmm. um, so we're just it's not um, it's not yet on the institutional radar. Um, so I was so okay. So back go back to 2013. I was um, thinking about this and doing a, doing a Google Scholar search and not finding much. Um, and it occurred to me that that some of the questions that I was interested in could probably actually be answered with something as simple as an online survey. Um, just where yeah. are people? What are they doing? Uh, what kind of workplace climates are they experiencing? Um, and I had a friend who uh, who I had met at, through the University of Minnesota, where I was at the time who was finishing up a PhD in basically exactly that field. Um, Alison Matice uh, is an um, education policy researcher. She's now at Cal State LA. Um, and she's done work on minority, minority identities and, and education and scientific research. Hmm. Um, so she's, she's used to working with survey data. She's used to working with one-on-one uh, -on -one interview data um, in something, that, something called qualitative analysis, which is basically a a very systematic way to uh, to summarize what you're getting from a lot of different uh, bodies of text, like transcripts of one-on-one -on -one interviews. Mm -hmm. um, and so I so I I uh, I wrote, I texted Allison and I said I have this idea for a for a survey. Uh, do you think this would be publishable in your field if we did it? And she she wrote back and said, Yes, I, let me help you with the IRB. <laughs> Nice. Um, and so she really, she, I mean, she, she basically welcomed me into social science and, um, helped me, helped us figure out the ropes of, uh, you know, what the, what sorts of, how we would construct the survey instrument, how we would, um, recruit people, how we would figure out, um, how we would figure out what the, uh, what the, how to talk about the results to sort of multiple audiences, because, um, the folks who reviewed the work, for example, for publication were mostly social scientists. The, the audience I was really keen to impress are, are mostly uh, natural scientists. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we've actually done a pretty good job of, of synthesizing that. Um, so for that, first, for that first survey, we got, we got uh, 1,400 responses from across the US and Canada. And we, um, we, didn't, we still don't have a good sense of what um, what the proportion of folks working in, in the sciences who are, who identify as LGBT or Q, what that proportion is. Um, the data, so we, um, the survey design that gets you a good, a good response for asking questions about, about workplace experience and, um, and what people are doing is different from the survey design that you need to do to figure out what that proportion is. Yeah. Um, and there are actually some folks, um, 
Tom Wayzunas and Aaron Check, uh, working on um, working with a couple of really big uh, scientific societies. I think uh, APA and ACS are involved um, to to send out a very very broad general survey that will ask basically their entire membership how they identify in terms of in terms of uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. And that will, that will probably be the first really rigorous estimate of this proportion. Um, uh, but what we were able to find with, with the data, which was like a, a data set of a size that felt good to me coming from a, an evolution and ecology background, like there's some statistical rigor that you can do with, um, you can do um, formal, formal hypothesis testing. Um, one of the so one of the one of the key metrics we used was we asked people how uh, to rate how open they were about their sexual orientation or gender identity on a five point scale, um, and what we found was that most folks who answered the survey were were entirely uh, out of the closet, as we say, in personal context, but they were often uh, many of those same people were were not out at all in the workplace. Hmm. Um, so the number. The number is, uh, let me see, oh, I wrote it down. Um, yeah, so 43% uh, of, people, of people who responded to the survey said they were out to, uh, they were out to none of their coworkers and colleagues or only a few of them. Um, wow. Yeah, what, the, what, yeah. What do you, what do you, what do you think about the, might be the consequences of that you know well so we um the biggest i think the biggest consequence is just is just it's an additional it's an additional workplace stressor um and it's yeah. it's a little psychologically tricky because um people one of the things we found in interviews is people are not necessarily experiencing um uh homophobia in the workplace exactly um but there's a lot of there's a lot of scientific workplaces where people just don't talk about their personal lives, hmm. and it's assumed that everybody is is uh, is straight. Hmm. Right. Um, and so you you get in you get in. It's it's actually kind of hard not to not to mention your your uh, a your significant other in in a lot of workplace contexts, but if you feel like it. If you feel like it will be a big deal, and even to to bring it up, and you'll have to do a lot of explaining, you you may just um, spend a lot of time and cognitive effort thinking about not doing it. <laughs> yeah. um, and there have been there have been sort of psychological studies that that show that uh, folks who are in the closet at work are are less invested in their in their employer. They have lower job satisfaction. They um, um, they feel less productive. One of the things, one of the things we, we are interested in doing, and we've got a, we've got a follow-up survey that has just closed. Um, we're interested in trying to quantify that effect using, um, scientific productivity metrics. Um, that, that, that is yet to be seen what, what we'll see with that, but, um, yeah. Did you see, um, a larger response for the second survey? Yes. Yes. So, um, the second survey, this, uh, this came up, I um, uh, met a Stanford graduate student uh, 
at a conference who was interested in doing doing some work of his own. And Allison and I had had some ideas uh, about things we wanted to do, but we didn't really have time to, to go after it. And uh, uh, Joey Nelson was was raring to go. So um, he's really taken he's took the lead on putting together a, a new questionnaire focused on some of these these questions that arose from the previous survey. Um, and we had that running from, um, I think it was June this year, and we closed it on Christmas Day. Um, and the, the, final result, the final count on that is uh, 3,800 responses. Nice, excellent. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, one, of, one of the caveats to that is, that is that about a third of those are actually straight people, because on the second survey, uh -huh. we wanted to get a, a sample of folks who don't identify as LGBTQ to answer some of the same questions about workplace experience and productivity. So we have a, a formal control in the data set this time. Yeah, excellent. Is there, so um, I know you mentioned that the, the first survey it had sort of a, a, a limited population uh, sample to work with statistically, but um, what, give, us, give us the top three bullets of conclusions from the first survey and aims on the second survey. Sure. So that I would say the top three, the top three takeaways from the first survey is just that there are, there is this population out there, and it's it's actually pretty big. Um, getting for, getting fourteen hundred responses nationwide is, uh, and based on from what we know now from the second survey, we hadn't even tapped the whole population. Um, right. Uh, so there's there's lots of folks out there. Um, we had responses despite the fact that things were sort of biased by my personal social network. Um, we had responses in all of the major STEM fields, um, uh, engineering, mathematics, uh, the physical sciences, social sciences. Um, the, so one of, the, one of the big takeaways is that I think um, that high fraction of folks who are not open in the workplace, and that has been, has been followed up, or so there's a, that's been corroborated by um, other surveys of the whole U.S. workforce that find a, actually a pretty similar rate. Um, so that's a that's a that's a point of concern, and that but that variation in the data set uh, lets us ask about what conditions make people more likely to be open in the workplace. Um, yeah, that's and so so. Uh, 92% of folks said that their workplaces were safe for LGBTQ folks. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and 85% said they, they felt they were welcomed or they were treated the same as their straight colleagues. Um, but folks who, who did not agree with those statements were more likely to be in the closet in the workplace, as, as you might expect. Um, mm -hmm. And some of the things that correlated with describing your workplace as, as welcoming or, or um, that you felt like you were treated the same were uh, concrete employer policies that, that uh, um, support LGBTQ folks. Um, so we were taking the survey before uh, marriage was, legal marriage was available to everybody who was, who was responding. Um, so if your employer had uh, benefits for same-sex partners, uh, regardless of legal marriage status, that was that was an important factor. Uh, for example, um, and the other the other really interesting factor is that when we when we compiled all of the responses in in the major um, major STEM fields that we looked at, 
and we compared them to the fraction of women working in those fields according to um, the National Academies of Sciences uh, data. Um, we found that participants in our survey who worked in fields with a higher proportion of women were more likely to be open. Mm -hmm. um, so the, it's, not, it's not an enormous effect. It wasn't from zero to five on our, our, our scale. It was about from uh, uh, an average of uh, two to 3.5. Um, but it's a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a difference. <laughs> yeah, I wonder um, if the same correlation holds for racial minorities as well. That's something we, we would love to, to know. Um, I don't know whether anybody's, I don't know whether anybody's done that correlation and our data is, our data is unfortunately not very good for it because, um, the, <laughs> The participants in our survey are overwhelmingly white, like a lot of a lot of science in the um, in the U.S. and North America. Um, yeah, but that's something else we've been hoping to we've been hoping will be better in the second round survey. Um, I don't think I I haven't seen that breakdown yet though. So here's here's a final and loaded <laughs> question: <laughs> How pervasive, anti? LGBTQ prejudice in STEM uh, and related to the overall workplace in, um, for example, it, is, are things better in STEM or are they worse? And what can we do about it? That's a good question. So um, I think our data actually suggests that STEM workplaces are a little bit better than average. Um, mm -hmm. So I mentioned this. I mentioned this survey of uh, the U.S. workforce as a whole. That was a study conducted, um, or that came out the year after we we submitted for publication um, by the Human Rights Campaign. Um, they found uh, they found I think it, so. It's a little bit tricky to compare the two outness scales because they used a slightly different one. But we both had a point at which we said, are you open to more or less than 50% of your coworkers? Um, and if we make that comparison, more folks in our survey were open than in the HRC survey. Mm -hmm. um, so that suggests uh, that, that actually people are, people are doing a little bit better in STEM. Um, and that would, to some degree, make sense given that these are workplaces where folks are on average more educated, um, are on average in uh, maybe larger cities than, um, than the general population. Um, uh, that said, you know, the 43% uh, of folks who are not open to most of their colleagues is, is more than zero and it's more than we want. Sure. Um, and I think, sure. I think uh, like I've said, I think, thing, I think the issue is not necessarily so much overt um, overt prejudice as it is um, some factors about STEM workplaces that may not be great for anybody, regardless of uh, uh, sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, just that we are not, we are not very good at, um, or we are often not very good at uh, sort of supporting the whole person in a, in scientific workplaces. We're sort of, we sort of have an ideal of um, coming to the lab and bringing our brains and forgetting that 
our we also <laughs> forgetting that there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on in our heads besides uh, keeping track of the samples and and um, doing the experiment. Hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting point. The, so you, you did mention one thing that is um, especially prevalent to some of our listeners who are small business owners, which is uh, right into your bylaws and your operating agreements. Uh, oh. Supporting minority rights, supporting. Say that again, Graham, because uh, you just cut out a little bit there. Helps. I was just saying, uh, I, I think it's that, oh, sorry. I'm still here. Okay. okay. Well, I think you were saying uh, that. To, to take every opportunity to, to, to write, um, basically be explicit about um, being welcoming and uh, being not using, I'm just looking at some of the, the very subtle language that gets thrown around in the workplace sometimes around asking about people's partners and you know just mm, using the right. using the word wife or husband and uh, girlfriend and boyfriend and things and they and they're very they're very small things you know? mm -hmm. it's, um, and and I feel like when I've seen <laughs> I don't know if it's fair to pick on academics but when I sort of think about uh, you know your classic professor type sometimes they can propagate accidentally, one assumes, um, you know, stereotypes by being a bit bumbling and sort of, oh, well, I, I don't really know about these things. And there's a little bit of that. And I get, you get the same thing around sexism and the same thing around sort of institutional racism and other sort of systemic problems where it's a bit like there's this vibe sometimes in the sciences of, um, or academia, maybe in general, of sort of ex self-excused ignorance and sort of uh, blundering through, sort of thing. Because, as you say, people sort of tend to say, "No, no, it's all about it's all about your work and your brain and your publications." Um, and I don't care about any of that other stuff. But actually, if your language sort of propagates it, then maybe you should care about it. <laughs> right? Yeah, I. I um... I think I think I try I try to I try not to I think I think a lot of the I think a lot of the issue is often just not thinking about the issue rather than rather than any sort of uh, explicit bad action right and I I think a lot of folks want to do better if they if once they understand the once they understand what's going on so is um, there something that you're uh, in the paper that comes out of survey number two, I, I hope that you'll uh, suggest concrete actions or, or at least uh, inspire actual concrete conversations between people about uh, what to change, what to do better. Yeah, so, um, so I think we have, we have some relatively concrete recommendations already, which is, you know, that, that Formal formal diversity statements do make a difference. Um, right. Uh, formal uh, policies of inclusivity can can do seem to contribute to to people's individual experiences. Um, but yeah, one of the one of the things we one of the motivations for any of the research and 
we think the, the next survey will help further this is that um, one of the best, one of the ways that scientists are comfortable about ha to have this conversation is when there are numbers to talk about. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. And we've, so we've seen that, we've seen that for issues of, of uh, gender balance in the sciences, particularly. Um, one, uh, the conversation I think has moved forward a lot in part because there have been folks doing, um, doing clever and interesting uh, studies of uh, how, um, for example, hiring practices in, in, science, in scientific labs can be biased by, by gender. Um, uh, the different career experiences of men and women over, over you know, a, the full stretch of an academic career. Mm -hmm. Well, we, uh, we hope that um, when you're finished, when you get results from survey number two and do some analysis, that you come join us again and we can, oh. in some small way, help, help disseminate information to our little audience. And I, well, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be happy to do that. If there's a, because I think that um, original article is not open um, access, but do you know if there's a preprint around anywhere? Uh, yeah, so there should be a PDF. There's a PDF available for download on my website. Oh, um, this is this is the this is um, my version of the workaround. Is I I simply have uh, manuscript copies of PDFs up yeah. uh, for for download uh, when the journal doesn't support a direct way to do that. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Tell us what your website maybe, is, Jeremy. Maybe this is. Oh, uh, sorry. The website is jbyoder.org. And there's a link to that in the show notes if you guys check that out. I must say, I mean, I think it's really cool that um, one of the things you've really highlighted for me is just that there, there are all these channels of research in the social sciences that are about how we do science and how mm -hmm. we interact with each other as scientists that I feel like we probably just never read <laughs> or even aware of this research and that could profoundly improve not only our sort of community, um, and how we sort of enjoy being part of it, but also our productivity and how awesome we are as scientists. And it seems kind of crazy, like it's just a really easy way to become uh, even more awesome than we obviously already are, uh, would be to somehow find a way to like get those, get some of that research exposed to us and actually go out and read it. <laughs> yeah, the, um, there's, uh, it's a, um, so I think I think uh, Nature and Science have actually started doing a pretty good job of developing those at the science of science as uh, news beats, and so I know the um, kind of the scientific press is is queuing on queuing on this body of research. So it is it is um, uh, it's easier than it used to be to to keep an eye on it. I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe um, we just need a. If you could throw a couple of the sort of channels oh, that you look at into the show notes, sure. maybe that, that I'd love that. Um, I'd be happy to. But I'd also, um, you know, we it, it wouldn't be undersampled radio if we didn't rag on conferences briefly. But it's <laughs> this, it's there, it's this kind of thing that I'd love to see being included in some programs. Uh, you know, I, I've been to a couple of great conferences where they did things like highlight sessions. They're almost like. Uh, literature surveys and literature reviews from like recent literature in a particular field but um, uh, I think it'd be a great way just to sort of raise awareness generally about all sorts of issues and um, if you're organizing a conference out there listener then uh, please <laughs> please think about 
um, connecting us to some of these other channels of research. Dr. Jeremy Yoder, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. This was a lot of fun. I, uh, I've really uh, been glad to be here. Again, we hope to have you back uh, sometime to, to talk about results. But before you leave us, we have one more question. Okay. And feel free not to answer or to answer whatever you'd like. Um, but we're going to submit this question to our audience and give them one week to solve it. Uh, I guess I need to preface this by saying that uh, Matt doesn't like this question. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to read it. So it's too hard. For, it's, not, it's not too hard. It's, uh, I think it's, I think it's uh, a fun and easy question, easier at least than last week's, and definitely easier than one of my favorites, which comes up next week. So have a little break, answer this question quickly, and um, you can submit your answers to where? Where, Matt? Uh, well, I, <laughs> you don't remember, well, do you? Get on, get on Swung. I mean, just get on the Software Underground. Um, right. Swung.rocks. Or you can email undersampledradio at gmail.com. Right? That's right. Is that how that works? It's spelled yep. properly as well in that um, manifestation of undersampled radio. So do it there. And uh, you'll have one week to uh, submit your answers to us from today, which is what? The uh, 14th of, I mean, no, wait, it's two weeks in showtime. How many weeks is it, Matt? I don't know. <laughs> Let me read the yeah. question. Let's say by the end of February, yeah. roughly. That sounds good. Um, <laughs> So you, just, it's hard. It's hard to predict because we have the uh, we had the video release and then we have the podcast release. So if you're watching this on video, it's two weeks. If you're watching it, if you're listening to it on a podcast, it's one week. Anyway, so you've just dropped your iPhone in the toilet, but you want to keep track. <laughs> you want to keep track of which day of the month it is. Um, so you don't have your trusty calendar app anymore. Your little notifications don't come up anymore. You, I mean, you could just write off tick marks on a piece of paper, but. You also have two wooden cubes sitting on the desk at your office. And you also happen to have a Sharpie. As a helpful person, you'd like to instruct anyone that's passing by. I mean, maybe they drop their iPhone in the toilet. They want to know what date it is. And make a couple of those little calendar block thingies. Sit on the desk and tell people what day it is, which day of the month. So you have two cubes. What numbers should you write on what cubes to be able to represent all of the days in all of the months. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> Matt hates it. Matt's probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, submit your answers to us, and I promise that when I come back, I will have the answer written down, and I won't have to work it out on a piece of paper. I, th I think we should have a meta contest. For the most contrived introduction to one of our brain teasers. So I actually did a decent job uh, last time at uh, obfuscating the question and making it geology-esque. Uh, and I did an awesome job for next week's question, so get ready for that. This week, I'm just we're both slacking. Anyway, that's us. That's our show, oh, folks. <laughs> Okay. Thanks again, Jeremy. Thanks for coming on the show, Jeremy. Uh, Thank you so much. See you next week on Undersampled Radio. Bye.